Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. All these rules that we have in our brain around all these different foods, you start to realize like, well, there's really no logic to that. Uh, Like, why couldn't you have pasta for breakfast? Like you have toast for breakfast. What's the difference really, you know? Welcome to How To. I'm Amanda Ripley. It's a new year, which means that many of us right now are resolutely vowing to better our lives in some way. The most common New Year's resolution? To lose weight or exercise more. It adds up to a lot of pressure, followed often by a lot of guilt if we don't succeed. So this week, we thought we would see if we could take some of the pressure off by accompanying one of our listeners on her own New Year's reckoning. I was super excited to um, find out that y'all wanted to do this. So my name is Tori. I live in the D.C. metro area, and I work for a nonprofit and try to ensure that folks have affordable homes available to them. It's work that has been all-consuming, especially during the pandemic. There's been a lot of pressure um, to make sure that people are not evicted. So we've been working insane hours, and my anxiety has been terrible throughout the pandemic. I'm not getting sleep, like... I tend to take, not take care of myself. I tend to take care of um, everyone else mm. around me. Do you remember what your New Year's resolutions were last year? Yeah, I wrote them down oh. actually in my notebook. Right. <laughs> yeah, 2021 resolutions. <laughs> Keep off the 10 to 15 pounds. A lot of it was like around mental health stuff and painting and resorting to other things that aren't healthy as coping mechanisms, like drinking and eating sugar and, you know, who knows what else. Are you tracking how much sugar that you're consuming each day or not really? So I was, um, (laughs) you know, I was tracking everything I ate. Then I just started tracking if I was eating dessert. Can you read us a little bit from the journal if it's in front of you? Um, It's a zero desserts. Can I do it? Question mark, question mark, question mark, question mark, question mark, question mark. February 22nd, Kit Kats. February 23rd, lemonade, a cookie. So I skipped two weeks probably because I was eating sugar. I love baking so much. And I love, love, love going to little bakeries and supporting local business, but also seeing how creative people get with their, their baked goods and their sweets. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm with you. Anything that comes out of an oven is my jam. Um, yeah. And most of yeah. us, I mean, let's be honest, most of us have a sweet tooth. What makes you worried about it? I mean, I think it's seeing myself um, get bigger, which I think is tough because um, when I was younger, especially, I was so active and I was under what was probably healthy in terms of physical size. Um, My mom has always, you know, mentioned my weight and being careful about it and worrying about, you know, my health as I get older. Mm -hmm. Um, And I do know that, you know, we have diabetes that runs in the family. My sister's a foot doctor, so I I feel really hyper aware because most of the people she sees are folks Mm -hmm. with diabetes. 
So she's constantly talking to me about, oh my gosh, they lost feeling in their foot and they got their foot cut off and all that kind of stuff. A lot of us can probably relate to Tori's pattern here, worrying about our health, wanting to cut back on sugar, and then chastising ourselves if we fail. But what if we're thinking about this all wrong? On today's episode, we're gonna try to free our minds from the matrix we're all in of dieting and calorie counting and the guilt that comes from indulging. Our guide down the rabbit hole is journalist Virginia Soul Smith. She's the author of The Eating Instinct and has been covering diet culture and weight stigma for years. She has some pretty mind-bending advice. You won't wanna miss it. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Virginia, I'd love to bring you in here. I mean, nutrition and body image and culture are so intertwined. It's, it's really complicated, right? Um, yes. To even know what the healthiest goal should be. So I'm just curious mm-hmm. for your initial reaction. So, Tori, thank you so much for being so open and and you are clearly someone who takes care of other people really, really well. And you've been doing that, it sounds like pretty nonstop through your job. And it is really hard to take care of ourselves. And the problem is one of the best ways we have to take care of ourselves is through food. But we Mm -hmm. live in a culture that tells us that when we do that, we're doing something wrong and that we should feel bad about seeking comfort from food. Like, I love how you just described going to bakeries. Like, this is something that's bringing you comfort and joy during a really stressful time. And Mm -hmm. that is not something you need to apologize about to anybody. But that is the cultural message we get. Mm -hmm. What are you doing to lose the pandemic 15 or the quarantine, Mm -hmm. whatever? And, you know, every time I saw one of those headlines, I just thought, why aren't we celebrating that we're here, that we did this, that we've gotten through these horrible times? I'm really proud you were taking care of yourself by eating sugar. I think that's pretty amazing. <laughs> wow. I, you know, you don't hear that very often. I know <laughs> no, you, you don't. <laughs> you don't. And that's because our culture demonizes sugar in particular. And because our culture equates eating with comfort with things that are truly self-destructive, like, you know, numbing out with drugs and alcohol or, Mm -hmm. you know, more reckless behaviors. But when you think about who we are as humans, like we are hardwired to need to eat, right? 
and we are hardwired to seek comfort from food. If you think about how a baby eats, right? Like a newborn baby, the first thing they do is cry out of hunger and then they eat and it feels so good, they fall asleep. And like, it's a design feature. It's not a bug in our system. I'm so, I'm curious, Tori, how you're feeling hearing this. Like I feel personally this explosion of contradictory feelings. Like on the one hand, wow, this is so liberating that I'm allowed to Mm -hmm. seek comfort and joy from cookies and pie. But also I feel like, no, 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 this can't be right. Because Mm -hmm. we know that the average American eats 17 teaspoons of sugar a day, which is like three times what the average woman is supposed to eat Mm -hmm. and two times what the average man. And Tori, how are you feeling? Yeah, confused, but also, you know, so I um, I was getting a lot of flashbacks to, you know, when when I was younger and we would have a hard day, my mom would take us, you know, to Dunkin' Donuts and we'd get hot chocolate and um, donuts and, and like that was really nice. Like, it, and honestly, I feel like those were some of the, I don't want to say only good moments, but they were highlights, I will say. Like anytime she baked and I'm actually getting a little... Um, emotional, sorry. Um, she would make us, um, whatever birthday cake we wanted. And then she would decorate them beautifully. She's very talented, um, when it comes to cake decorating. I love that you have like good food memories. I think there's a strange thing our culture does where we do give children this window of being able to experience the joy in food and, then as we get older, we kind of lose that permission to have a hard day and then take comfort in hot chocolate. Like that is, that is a beautiful coping strategy and it's a survival strategy and, you know, Mm -hmm. it's, it's really valuable. So, yeah. And it's also about personal connection, especially when that was sometimes hard. Yes. Yes. Here's our first insight. There are many reasons beyond hunger or lack of willpower that drive people to seek food. And some of those reasons are actually really good reasons, like comfort or connection or celebration. Tori, I'm curious, your mom's this amazing baker and it was a way that she showed her love to you, it sounds like. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And I wonder, does that make it even harder when she's kind of being critical of your yeah. eating habits now? 100%. It's extremely hard when she's like, oh, here are here are all these sweets I made for you. I want to see you eat them. Oh, why are you eating that cookie? You don't need to eat that cookie. Like, what? I don't know. That seems like an impossible situation. Yeah. And, you know, that sort of mixed message you got from her of like, I made you this food to show my love. Wait, don't eat this much food. You're going to get that that is a really Mm -hmm. common trap. And, you know, there's this way in which moms are told that like the most important job they have is to feed their kids and to feed them this quote right way. And Mm -hmm. that they are somehow responsible for their children's bodies and their children's body size. All of those things get very tangled together, particularly with moms and kids and food. Our next insight is to acknowledge that we get bombarded with mixed messages about food in our culture. It's especially confusing for parents. Often we want to make our kids happy and show them love by baking cupcakes 
And there's this simultaneous pressure for them to be thin, which proves to the world that we are good parents at the very same time. All of this results in us sometimes baking them a cookie with one hand and taking it away with the other. We'll talk more about this later, but before we go any further, we need to talk about a common misconception around body weight and health. We have a lot of studies with strong correlations between high body weights and poor health outcomes, but we don't know that it's the body weight itself causing the problem. But what we do know is that people in larger bodies um, tend to have other things going on. Um, Mm. You know, large body size correlates with being of lower socioeconomic status, that has a huge impact on your health. As you know, Tori knows really well, if you don't have safe housing, your health is probably compromised mm. in pretty dramatic ways. Does yeah. that mean you need to lose weight or does that mean you need safe housing? Mm-hmm. Right. And we never have those conversations because our bias against body size is so significant. Mm. So you're saying like, slow your roll. Don't assume you know that being overweight leads to all these health consequences. It correlates with them, but we don't know. We right. just don't know. Is that We don't. And we do know that people in larger bodies are experiencing direct harm because of the stigma. Um, yeah. So slow your roll is a great way to put it. <laughs> the truth is, it's really hard to definitively pinpoint what causes disease. When it comes to obesity, studies have shown significant links between being overweight and developing certain diseases, such as diabetes. But a lot of other things matter too. What we can say for sure is that we, as a society, often focus on weight gain as the issue while ignoring underlying problems like depression. Why are we focusing on the weight gain and not the depression? Right, exactly. And instead, we start and stop with the weight loss thing. And that's a really good point because I think like this body weight is more of like me connecting issue is connecting to like actually my like emotional needs my mental health has been extremely stressed during this and that's time period like you deserve all the support for that and if food is helping you survive this really intense time then that's a good thing and if that results in some body changes like you know so what kind of i mean i don't want to downplay the stress of it but like that is not the worst thing that's happening if you lost weight today Mm -hmm. and all those other problems remained you wouldn't be any happier. And no. that's, but that's the myth that we're sold is that if we get thin, all of our other problems will be fixed. Yeah. And it's interesting how I'm, I'm coupling the weight with my other issues. Like it's like, I'm focusing on that. Yeah. You know, we have all this research showing that weight loss is incredibly difficult to achieve and doesn't work for most people. You know, there's always a new diet yeah. to try. There's all these books. There's all the, you know, like you can, yeah. you can download all this information and that's like way more straightforward than, you know, fixing your relationship with your mom or not, or, you know, like, like, yeah. like all these other problems <laughs> are much, you know, can feel a lot more overwhelming. So where does that leave Tori and the rest of us? Tori came to us with a legitimate question, wanting to know how she can reduce the amount of sugar she's consuming partly for weight reasons, partly because she has diabetes in her family, and perhaps most importantly, because she just feels out of control. We tend to think of ourselves as addicted to sugar, right? That's the kind of language that gets Mm -hmm. used in our culture. Like, I'm so out of control. I'll never stop eating it. I can't have it in the house, or I'm going to never, you know, like I'll eat the whole bag of whatever it is. And 
what we need to understand about that is sugar is not physically addictive. It is not heroin. It is not alcohol. It is not a physically addicting substance. So if someone is addicted to drugs or alcohol, they can never get enough, right? Like there is no off switch. They will always want another drink or another, you know, whatever. Sugar Mm -hmm. is a substance. Once you have enough, you will stop wanting it. And that's where I know you're saying, no, that's not true for me. I will never stop wanting it. But that's because (laughs) you've never given yourself permission to fully have it. Huh. So dieting causes the feeling of sugar addiction. Because if you've been deprived and restricted by not allowing yourself to eat it, you will crave sugar really intensely. And then when you do get to eat it, you will eat a lot of it because you haven't been Mm. able to have it. This is called intuitive eating. It's when you stop looking at foods as good or bad and start actually listening to your body and eating what feels right. There's not a ton of good research yet on intuitive eating, and I'm still a little skeptical about it personally. I'm not sure I can fully trust my intuition in our culture because we're constantly surrounded by processed food, added sugar, and huge portion sizes But I will admit there is something compelling about the reverse psychology behind all of this. When you restrict something and make it forbidden, guess what? You usually want it more. And when you break or cheat, then there's this, ah, screw it all mindset where you just go all in and have way more than you would have if you hadn't restricted yourself so severely in the first place. None of which is to say you should only eat sugar all day long. Yeah, you wouldn't feel great if you ate nothing but sugar all day because we also need protein, we also need fat, we need other forms of carbohydrate. Yes, absolutely. Part of what would make somebody want to eat nothing but sugar all day is the fact that they have been restricted from sugar. That's the binge response, which is a really understandable response to restriction. It's again, a feature, not a bug. It's your body saying like, hey, you have cut me off from this thing that we need to make our Mm -hmm. brain function, you know? And so now that we can get it, we better get as much as possible because your body is really good at fighting starvation. And so, and your body doesn't know that when you're not feeding Mm -hmm. it, that you're dieting, your body thinks like, well, we're in a famine situation. So when we get food, we better eat as much as we can. So here's the idea. If you give yourself permission to have sugar when you really want it, you'll eventually get sick of having unhealthy amounts you will have essentially lessened that food's hold over you, and your body will be back in harmony, craving the fuel you really need. I've been trying this on my own, and I'm curious to see if it's true for me. It reminds me of watching my son when he was little at a birthday party or something, having a piece of cake, and after a few bites, he would often just stop. He was done, which sort of confused me at the time. You know, I'm thinking, why wouldn't you eat the whole thing? (laughs) But maybe that's the natural response. It is going to look different for every person, but for most people at some point, maybe a few days, maybe a few weeks, Mm -hmm. maybe a few months, it really depends how much restriction you're working through and how long it takes you to give yourself full permission. At a certain point, you will habituate to it. It almost sounds like sugar is like casual sex, right? Like if you just have a bunch of one night stands, you're going to be like, okay, you know what? I don't need to do that every night. Like that, that, that loses its luster, right? Eventually. 
I mean, as someone who's had a lot of one night stands, I will say, yes, that is exactly true. <laughs> there you go. You habituated to one night stands and you can habituate to brownies in the same way. It's a great analogy. <laughs> and believe me, like when I was in my dieting days, brownies were my like really obsessive food, which is why I brought them up, especially because you're also a baked good fan. Um, and I can remember sitting at like a family party and looking at the tray of brownies on the table and just thinking constantly about, can I take another one? Will I look crazy if I take another one? How many have I had? Is everyone counting how many I've had? And thinking everyone else is just having a conversation. And all I'm thinking about is these brownies. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if the first step here might be to give yourself permission to um, to have the brownie, Mm -hmm. what's the second step? Mm -hmm. To give yourself permission to have another brownie if you want another brownie. (laughs) Okay. What's Um, the third step? (laughs) Um, it's, you know, to be honest, it's tricky to put into steps like that. And that's like what diet culture does is put it into steps (laughs) and it's not going to be that neat. But I think the next step is then to be curious about how things change for you. Are there sort of subtle ways you notice your interactions with food and with movement changing because you're getting more rest and you're getting more nourishment and you really deserve those things? Um, And Virginia, it's so interesting, too, because like I've been preventing myself from baking, even though I love doing that and it gives me a lot of pleasure and I love like trying to create recipes and you know, new things because I'm like paranoid about eating sugar and gaining weight. Yes. I think step three for you is to start baking again, you know, yeah. to find <laughs> yeah. your joy with this. This is something that gives you so yeah. much joy. So let's say you want to give yourself permission, but you're not sure you fully trust your intuition yet. There's a couple things you can try. You can keep a journal of how you feel after eating certain foods, which is different from tracking calories. Instead, you're trying to just tap into a more intuitive cause and effect. It might also be worth meeting with a dietitian to make sure you're properly fueling yourself. When we come back, Tori tells us about an intervention gone wrong and how sometimes your well-intentioned friends can make things worse. Don't go anywhere. On Death, Sex, and Money, we feature interviews with you, our community of listeners, getting honest about uncomfortable things. I developed an illness where it isn't safe for me to drive. A friend once said to me, sex is like air. You don't think about it until you're not getting enough. This is a similar sort of thing if you just replace sex with driving. Listen to Death, Sex, and Money wherever you get podcasts. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. 
And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. If you rely on how-to, the best way to support this show is by joining Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Signing up for Slate Plus helps us help all the people you hear about on our podcast every week. It's only $1 for the first month, and members will never hear another ad on our podcast or any other Slate podcast. You'll also get free and total access to Slate's website. To sign up now, go to slate.com slash how-to plus. Again, that's slate.com slash how-to plus. Thanks. We're back with our listener, Tori, and Virginia Soulsmith, author of The Eating Instinct. For most people, openly commenting on weight gain is an obvious social taboo, kind of like asking a woman if she's pregnant. But on a recent weekend getaway, Tori's friends went for it anyway. So we had just come from a trip to Virginia, and we were at a vineyard on our way back. The whole weekend, like, it was a lot of talking about all of us had anxiety, actually. (laughs) So I think, like, I was talking about trying to lose weight and my unhealthy, quote-unquote, ways. And then people being like, yeah, yeah, like, yeah, Tori, we're really concerned about you. Like, oh, did you, like, think about the fact that you could get diabetes, diabetes running in your family? Oh, it does? Okay, well, like, you should really, you know, think about... (laughs) Um, sugar. Oh, you know, wine has sugar in it. Alcohol has sugar in it. It's like, okay, what? Oh my God, we're <laughs> at a vineyard. It was, it was intense. How did you feel at that moment? I did not like it. I was definitely like, okay, well, this is ridiculous. Like, it felt like it was like this intervention. Like, oh my God, you're going down this really bad track. Tori's mostly over this experience by now, but other things have been harder to get past. The things that really stick around more are, like, the comments from my mom and Mm -hmm. also hearing people, like, themselves obsessing about their weight. I think those two things are, like, the things that really honestly are more, I think, impactful when people tell you the same messages over and over and over and over. Like, that gets ingrained in you. I've been in so many conversations like that. It's really common for women in particular to bond through the project of weight loss and the goal of weight loss. Yep. And that may be a difficult process to sort of pull yourself out of that. You need to say to people, you know, I really feel like thinking about dieting all the time, thinking about not letting myself have sugar, like that was causing me more stress than was helpful. And so I'm trying something different mm-hmm. here. I'd love it if we could talk about something other than weight. I'm just thinking a lot of my friends are really like focused on losing weight, working out. I guess my question is, how does it feel for you when they talk about it? Yeah, I don't like it. I don't like it. That's our next suggestion. Notice if your friends bond over their fixation on weight loss or exercise. If it leaves you feeling worse instead of better, change the subject and explain why. Sometimes the more we obsess over something, the worse it gets. So I'm curious, do you have a scale at your house, Tori? I do, yeah. Virginia, do you have a policy on this? Um, I would recommend 
throwing it in the garbage. I mean, you can also light, light it on fire is <laughs> another way to go. You know, baseball bat, however. <laughs> whatever feels cathartic to you oh baseball um, bat if you do that will you record it for us because that would be exciting tape for us oh. I will um, I honestly might donate it but then I'm like if I donate it right, that's just right. like you're giving that's, a gun to somebody that's why I, yeah. I did not say donate it um, there's really nothing helpful about having a scale in your home I mean it's okay. it triggers so much obsessing you know and the small weight fluctuations that are a normal part of having a human body it's so easy to get Mm -hmm. hung up on it um yeah there's just no need and i mean to be the devil's advocate for a second like new year's resolutions are they all bad like it is good to set goals right to sort of take stock and reflect and look ahead and think longer term right Mm-hmm. Oh, I am. A, I love setting goals. I'm a big goal setter. I just argue firmly that we should not be setting goals around our bodies because body size is mm-hmm. not really in our control. You know, if your body size is determined at least about 60% by genetics, the other, the next biggest piece of the puzzle is social determinants of health and environmental influences mm-hmm. you can't control. We think of it as all diet and exercise, but that's like a very small percentage of it. And so setting expectations around body size is setting yourself up for disappointment and obsessive thinking. That's, I think, the hardest thing is like feeling my physical body getting bigger and like, and then getting to the point where I need to get more bigger clothes. And like, I mean, how do you, I don't know, it's, it's, how do you counter that, um, that inner dialogue, I guess? I mean... I don't know. It's it's hard. (laughs) That is a really hard part of it. And it's a really hard part of it because you are getting so many messages all the time telling you that your body getting bigger is a failure and and a problem to fix. But it's not. It's not a failure. It's not a problem to fix. And, you know, one thing I did and that a lot of folks do that's quite helpful is really curating your social media feeds. So you're seeing, you know, like Instagram can be this, you know, absolute cesspool of body negativity, but you can also really curate your Instagram. So you're regularly seeing bigger bodies and seeing people in bigger bodies living their lives and being happy. And, and so doing some counter programming to start to be able to embrace that there are possibilities for you and your life at this body size can be a really important tool. That's a really good point. I, I, I was thinking like, I, um, I don't know. I'm going to, I'm going to, I feel like that, um, the negative thoughts about like fat and, and fat shaming has even sunk into my like subconscious that I don't realize. I don't know what I'm trying to say. You're saying it's like so deeply embedded. Like in our, yeah. yeah, in the way we talk to ourselves and the way we talk to other people, it feels like a big leap to go from where we're at to what Virginia is describing. We demonize fatness because we associate it with a whole host of bad characteristics that we don't mm-hmm. want to be. Um, it's also very intersected with racism and classism and, you know, every other ism. <laughs> so, you know, it's a difficult thing to stop expecting thinness for yourself when our culture Mm -hmm. has told you that and your mother has told you that and everybody has told you that since you were a little kid that that's the goal but I do think starting to recognize the larger social justice issue of weight stigma can be a helpful 
first step in reframing that. Mm-hmm. I've I've never thought about it like that, but honestly, like I could see it connecting to mental health mm. stuff mm. And, and being like, like, cause everyone in my life knows I have anxiety and, very, and depression. I'm very open about it. Speaking of mental health, one thing to keep in mind is that if you or someone you know is struggling with an eating disorder, some of this advice changes. Yes. Someone, um, with a restrictive eating disorder can't jump straight into intuitive eating because Mm. the eating disorder is so loud that you're not hearing your hunger cues. And in eating disorder recovery, there's a very important stage of needing someone else to manage your food and make sure you're weight restoring and make sure you're eating enough. For most people who want to break out of the cycle of dieting and then guilt, Virginia's advice is pretty simple. Give yourself permission. Permission to have that extra brownie if you want it. Permission to exercise because you feel better afterwards, not just to lose weight. Permission to be in the body you're in right now. I wonder, you know, around the holidays, this can be a very hard time because not only are we surrounded, inundated with lots of temptations and treats and delicious things to eat. And that's like a way that people bond and connect. And um, But we're also around our family <laughs> a lot more often. Oh my God. Like even looking at me when I get in the door and being like, oh, you gained weight. <sighs> or, oh, you look better. Did you lose like 10 pounds? Or did you lose some weight? So as soon as you walk in the um, door, there's a, there's a uh, yeah, once the over. Assessment. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So that's something to prepare for, I guess, because you know it's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right, right. And I feel like a lot of people do yes. that, though. They look oh, at yeah, you. Oh, yeah, it's like the first thing you say, oh, my God, you look great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So here's our last insight. None of this is easy. It's going to take a lot of internal and external support. And honestly, in some cases, a lot of work on any underlying issues like depression and anxiety. But this kind of reframing can help break us out of the matrix, a cycle of dieting and failure that in most cases goes nowhere good. I'm curious, Tori, like I know you came to us with a what seemed like a pretty simple question. How do I <laughs> eat less sugar? And I'm not sure yeah. I'm not sure that we've given you the answer. Because we didn't say, okay, there's yeah. five rules that you need to follow in order to reduce your sugar intake. Yeah. But also like I feel like, you know, Virginia did do a really great job of like outlining like, okay, here's how you start going down that path. And I think also, um, you know, working maybe with my therapist to connect this this to like the other underlying issues I think would help as well. I think I've, I also have felt just like an intense, I don't want to say like sadness, like just intense, like there are a lot of periods that I wanted to cry like throughout this conversation. I think there's often a little bit of a grief process in letting go of this goal of achieving this body you were told that was going to solve everything. And yeah, that is scary and also maybe sad. Virginia, oh my gosh, thank you. This has connected to so many other aspects of my life and I really appreciate you. I really appreciate your time. <laughs> no, I, this was, I loved doing this with y'all and Tori, I am really excited for you and I'm like, I just really appreciate you being so open to some of this reframing. And, you know, I wish you a lot of luck with this. And I also really want to hear how things go for you. So please keep in touch. We 
we actually already heard back from Tori. She sent us this amazing picture of her scale in pieces. And here's what she said. Hey Amanda, this is Tori. I just wanted to provide a quick update. So I actually took apart my scale yesterday. I felt bad throwing it out, um, but I decided I could recycle the metal in it. So it is currently apart. I talked to my sister about the podcast and I was really nervous about it because I thought she would be critical, but she was really supportive um, and happy to hear that I was trying to accept myself. And again, thank you so much for taking all that time. I'm excited to keep moving forward on this journey to a better me. Thanks to Tori for being so open and to Virginia Soul Smith for all of her useful advice. Make sure to look for her book, The Eating Instinct, and her newsletter and podcast, Burnt Toast. Are you trying to be a better you this year? Send us a note at howto at slate.com or leave us a voicemail at 646-495-4001. We'd love to have you on the show. And if you like what you heard today, please give us a rating, tell a friend, leave us a review. That helps us get better at what we do. How To's executive producer is Derek John. Rosemary Belson produces the show. Our theme music is by Hannes Brown, remixed by Merritt Jacob, our technical director. Special thanks to Shannon Paulus, Amber Smith, and Kevin Bendis. Charles Duhigg created the show. I'm Amanda Ripley. Thanks for listening.